The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. I am Mary Woods, your host, and it is my extreme pleasure today to introduce our guest, Claudia Black, who um, I'm sure most of you know, she's one of the pioneers of our profession. Um, did groundbreaking work on children of alcoholics and adult children of alcoholics. She has now got her MSW, her Ph.D. She's received numerous awards for her work in our profession. Um, I know you've seen her all around the country and around the world. She is currently the author of Deceived, Facing Sexual Betrayal, Lies, and Secrets, um, which is a most fascinating self-help book for women who are in relationships with uh, men who have a history of um, sexual acting out. So welcome, Claudia. It's a pleasure and honor to have you on our show. Hello, Mary. It's my pleasure to be here. So um, can you just share with us how, how you've gone from your early work in working with adult children of alcoholics to now um, your latest um, work has been working with women who are partners in this, um, you know, co co-addicts in this relationship of sexual addiction. Certainly. You know, it's, I wouldn't the same thing when, when suddenly that's, this is what I was doing. I said, how did I get from children of alcoholics and adult children into this particular field? But it actually ended up being very much unnatural. You know, when I first came into the field of addiction, we didn't even use that word. It was the field of alcoholism. And as I was doing my early work with children and adult children of alcoholics, you didn't just look at the dynamic of alcoholism in the family because so many other dynamics came into play. Physical abuse, sexual abuse. Pretty soon you saw eating disorders, and then you saw depression. And so my professional field over 30 years now has really expanded um, to deal with the complexities. And that's what really happened in this case. I was uh, I know Patrick Carnes very well, and approximately 12 years ago he said to me, Claudia, I'm doing several of these groups, and I'm doing them in more of a retreat fashion with sex addicts, but we don't have a counterpart for their partners. And is that something that you would like to do, be willing to do? And, you know, I said, you know, Patrick, I'm not real steeped in sex addiction. I'm not sure I'm the right person. He said, no, I think you are the right person. And so I went ahead with that encouragement and began to do these groups. And I have to tell you, my very first group, I suddenly knew how right from the standpoint that the women, and they were predominantly women, we can talk about that in this interview as well, um, but how so many of them had come from homes that were very shame-based, very fear-based. They often came from addictive homes themselves. They often came from homes in which there was sexual abuse. So the history of who this woman is probably most apt to be really very much has been where a lot of my work is. And so it was a natural. Now, I don't see myself necessarily totally focusing on this particular arena. I think I take a much wider brush in the area of addictive disorders. But it certainly fits in the realm of 
the specialty that I have, which has to do with families affected by addictions. And obviously, in this case, it means other addictions and not just substance abuse. Well, and, you know, I think recently, unfortunately, there's been a lot of media attention drawn to sex addiction. And I think that there's, you know, we can see somebody who's falling down drug or who is a cocaine addict or, um, you know, is bulimic or anorexic. You can see the physical signs of that. And I think that a lot of people have trouble believing that there is such a thing as a sexual addiction because I guess because you can't see it. I get that question. And particularly since the latest publicity regarding Tiger Woods, um, so many of the people in my life who are not in the field say to me, is there really such a thing as sex addiction? And, you know, I think they have, one, this misperception that this is a person who has absolutely no control over any aspect of their sexuality, which absolutely is not what's true. And and sex is also a natural drive that uh, our sexuality is a natural part of who we are. But it's much more similar to having uh, other process addictions, much more similar to a food addiction, which that also is something that is a given that needs to be a part of, of who we are. And that I think the part, though, that with any process addiction, if you don't have substance abuse, the ability to hide it is so much greater and that when somebody is exposed, what typically you're only seeing is just a small tip of the iceberg. Now, we never know for sure. Well, if you're the therapist, ultimately you may know for sure. But, you know, for the public standpoint, they're only seeing a piece. And so, hence the need for a good evaluation and a good therapeutic process to really ascertain, um, is this an isolated behavior um, prompted, you know, by, you know, an anger or something like that, um, or do we have a chronic problem going on? Well, and there's some there's kind of a societal acceptance of, um, on some level, it's kind of okay for a man to fool around or a successful man. It's kind of what they expected. Um, I was home this week with food poisoning, so I got to watch a lot of the uh, movie channel, and there were there were a number of um, like movies made in the 30s and 40s. And, you know, a couple of the stories, it was just, I was reading your book and, and watching this and thinking, here's Clark Gable, who's married to Claudette Colbert, but it was okay for him to go off on the side and have an affair with Hedy Lamar, even though his wife knew about it, you know, and, and the woman was just supposed to understand, you know, and I thought, that's kind of like a reoccurring thing. And interesting enough, it's not a whole lot different than particularly alcoholism. Um, for years, it's been certainly okay for people to drink, to drink into excess, um, to even be drunk at times. Um, and I think this idea of, in, when I grew up, the word was womanizing. And somebody right. would say, well, he's a womanizer. Um, or if they were talking about the woman, they'd say, well, she, you know, she really likes her sex. And that, that from a societal standpoint, this has been an addiction that has strongly been reinforced. But that doesn't mean that it's not an addiction. Um, and that there's a point in which this behavior becomes compulsive um, and repetitive in a way that a person doesn't have the ability which to stop it, um, even when they see the wreckage, the wreckage of their past, and that's when they need the help. Or the belief, I guess, that they're not really wrecking their past, that they're able... One of the things you talked about was being able to compartmentalize um, that, that people who... Uh, men who are involved in these behaviors are able to compartmentalize Compartmentalize, yeah, thank you, yeah, yeah. Um, this behavior. So it's like it's 
once once it's over, it's like put in a box and they don't go there again. And can you explain a little bit about that? Well, let me um, one say that both men and or women who are acting out sexually in, in a, an addictive manner, they tend to come from the same kinds of families that their partners tend to come from. Again, fear-based and shame-based. And one of the survivor skills we learn in those types of families growing up is the ability in which to compartmentalize, something that we all in our humanness need to know how to do. But if I come from, let's say, a substance abusing home or a home where there's uh, sexual shame, I need to learn to compartmentalize more rigidly for my own sake of emotional survivorship. So the ability to compartmentalize usually was developed prior to whatever their substance of choice is, and in this case it's sex. So they are more skilled at it than others, and it happens to be what was once a childhood defense that becomes a skill that enables this particular uh, behavior. You know, I had a man who said to me, growing up in an alcoholic home, in a home where there was a, was a highly sexualized, charged family system, and he said, you know, as a child growing up, he said, I had my world of school, I had my world of play, and I had my world of sex. And every one of them would do something different for me. And his sex became really his anesthetizer in terms of the emotional pain. Um, the world of school was where he got accolades um, for producing. And the world of play is where he would find some release. And he said, so it became very easy as I moved into my adulthood. One more time, I had these three different worlds, and they were to never meet. He said, it was my world of work, it was my family, and my world of sex. And they very much replicated how he had compartmentalized getting his needs met in these very different places as a child. So that compartmentalizing, as I said, is a finely honed skill that this person is more apt to experience than somebody else is. And as I said, it's very good at enabling. Now, it isn't just the simplicity of compartmentalizing. You also have the need to minimize. You have the need to rationalize to be able to support your continuing in this behavior. As the addicted person is doing this, so is what we call the COSA. What I mean by that is the COSEX addict, the partner here. She is going to put her head in the sand, bury her head in the sand while the house is almost literally burning down around her, saying everything's just fine. I'm sure he's not doing that anymore. So what you have is a real dance going on, which is also totally characteristic of other types of addictions. Um, in your book, Deceived, Facing Sexual Betrayal, Lies, and Secrets, you talked about the women of the lodge, and you give very, um, you introduce us to a number of women who have gone through this. And what um, was striking is how, in some instances, the one of the women, her reaction was to go out and have an affair, you know, and, and that, the, that the, the partner sometimes will begin to sexually act out as well. Very much, and there's a handful of things I can say about the lodge there, but about the partner, they often engage in their own acting out behavior, um, usually as a direct response, in this case, uh, to their anger. Um, now, it was very interesting because I happened to be home last night watching television, and I, I've been watching Good Wife, which is, I think, personally, I think it's a wonderful show that really gives you a sense of who this Cosa was. But what we saw is that the wife in this case was very titillated by a man that she was working with, and the question is, is she going to pursue and have an affair? And, you know, I think what happens is these are partners who are very lonely. They're partners that are very confused. They're partners that are very angry. And they're in a very vulnerable position in terms of 
so coming to the attention that another man may be given in, that's what was the case on television last night, but also sometimes they will just flat go out and sort of make themselves available. Um, one is, am I desirable? Um, obviously, if my husband or my partner is acting out with all these other people, we typically think that we are not desirable, and it could be a way of just trying to find some validation for ourselves. But I have never worked with a woman who has done this, who felt that that was, in hindsight, the right thing to have done. They have always regretted it. They understand it. Ultimately, they need to come to forgive themselves for their own self-defeating behavior. And this is a part of what we call their disease, um, their own self-defeating, self-destructive behaviors that doesn't further themselves at all in terms of this healing process, nor does it have the potential to further this publishing. So everybody's really got a role in the potential for healing and recovery, not just the person who's back in and this is very much a, a two-person recovery, and I think that um, that's something that we don't often focus on either. We focus on the person who has the addiction, but really tend to um, sometimes underinvest in the, the, the partner or the co-addict. And we'll be right back with Claudia Black after this um, commercial. To a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Money. We love it, we hate it, and everything in between. You can be the master of your life and your own economics. Join Professor Laurie Lamantia each week for the program, Making Peace with Money. Laurie will help you realize the power to create fulfillment in your life and shed new light on your money madness. You'll learn how to make peace with money and feel the joy and freedom renewed in your life. Making Peace with Money is broadcast live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Claudia Black, and we're talking about her new book, Deceived, Facing Sexual Betrayal, Lies, and Secrets. And prior to going to break, we were discussing um, the partner of, or the woman who's involved with the man who is who has a sexual addiction and a sexual um, acting out. And um, one of the questions I have is that we know in substance abuse, you know, there's a continuum of, of, you know, from people who never drink to people who drink socially to people who misuse, abuse, and then become dependent on um, alcohol or other drugs. And is the same continuum in sexual addiction? Is there the, that same type of continuum, or is it more um, just the repetitive compulsivity? No, I think... Um there's very much the similar uh, continuum. Um, and, I, you know, I also think that what we see is, you know, for some people, when they're alcoholic, for some people from the day they start to drink, they've never had a normal drink. There are certainly some people from the day they begin to express their sexuality. It's uh, what we would typically think of in terms of late stage. It's not that they ever seem to have a normal, uh, you know, sexual development for them. And typically when that's true, they uh, often come from homes in which they have been offended themselves. They're often sexual abuse survivors. Um, and at a very young and quick age, it became that uh, anesthetizer for them. You know, I had one of my addicts said to me, he said, when I began to drink when I was 11, and he said, I had a hole in my gut that was so big and only alcohol and drugs would fill it up. But he said, then I quickly discovered masturbation and pornography. And he said, that would take me to a whole other realm. And he said, the fact that I did not feel loved, the fact that I felt so much shame, wasn't there anymore. He said, what I had now was me, just me, me, me. And again, for people like him, um, that sex quickly becomes the answer to something that's very deep and very complex. And you may not see... um, sort of that continuum lived out. As I said, you may see them in more of a full-blown addiction much quicker than others. Well, you know, I think what's interesting um, is that when you think about the the co-addict or the partner, um, the one woman that's described in the book, from the very first date, she started to engage in sexual practices that made her feel uncomfortable. And she continued without thinking... um, anything other than, I don't really like this, but I'm going to continue in this relationship. And I think that kind of speaks to women's sense of self-esteem and our own kind of uncomfortableness with our own sexuality. Um, Well, I think that who this woman is is strongly influenced by culture and strongly influenced by family. You know, I think just as women, we are taught to defer to men. We are taught to acquiesce. We are taught to be polite. We are taught to, you know, take on their needs before our own needs. Um, and then if you also come from a family system where, in essence, you become needless and wantless because the needs of everybody else takes on a greater importance, that just fuels this dynamic. If you come from a family system where there's a lot of chaos and a lot of disruption, 
lot of hurtful behavior that's tolerated. You learn as a young person how to tolerate that which is hurtful. You learn how to deny, minimize, put on that cheery face, um, and to rationalize why it is you're putting up with this. And for the woman who very quickly, from her first date, was engaging in sexual practices that she wasn't comfortable with, that was very much her history. I also think that women more so than men struggle around certainly body images and around feeling good about themselves in terms of their sexuality. So they're more apt to question themselves. Um, and I was just on television yesterday that women, in fact, could be more hardwired for guilt than other than men are, whether or not they're hardwired. What we do know is that women take on guilt for things they're not guilty for, um, and they take responsibility uh, for the behavior of others. So if you're not happy, somehow I'm responsible for that. Um, but what you're also talking about here is the very significantly a willingness to engage in behaviors that don't fit with my value system or what feels good for me. Very much speaks to a diminished self-esteem. And again, you know, where does that come from? And very much speaks to sort of a lack of healthy expectations for relationships. Now, Mary, the reason I keep sort of coming back to where does this come from, because interesting enough, a lot of their recovery in the long run is going to be addressing these codependency issues, which were there typically before they partnered with this particular person. And all the more reason they get the help, um, because even if they were to leave that relationship, they still take all those dynamics with them. They just got to play themselves out in a way that it really fueled an addictive process with this partner. But... They would still take their shame. They still take their giving the other person the benefit of the doubt. They still take their high tolerance for inappropriate behavior right into any relationship if they don't get the help for themselves. And that's crucial because they're just doomed to repeat the same scenario. And that's, and that's so, so common. Um, you know, that, uh, that it's not just the one partner, but it's the second partner, it's the third partner, that they've all been engaged in some kind of at least addictive disorder if it's not all been sexual addiction is at least another addictive disorder. The other thing that we sometimes see is I've worked with certainly a great number of women who were one of the partners when he was doing the acting out, when he was married to the previous wife, and sometimes uh, end up married to him not realizing that their situation, in fact, is not unique, but really is the MO and the modus operandi for this particular person. I wanted to say something, too, about um, the whole idea of women of the lodge. I dedicate this book to what I call the Women of the Lodge because in working long-term with a particular group of women, one, I want to say, these are people that, one, are attractive, they are bright, um, the behavior is not about them, the behavior of their partner. And that's the first question they ask is, you know, what is it that's wrong with me? And um, it's not about they're not being sexy enough. It's not about they're not being bright enough. It's not about they're not being pretty enough. Um, and that is what I always say initially is about a whole lot of things, but the one thing it's not about is it's not about you. And I found that this group of women heal more quickly and find joy coming back into their life more readily as they connect and heal within a community of other women addressing the same kinds of things. So one of the messages I wanted to impart in this book was how valuable it is if you would be willing to allow yourself to be a part of a group process, be it a self-help group process or a therapy group process, for, with other women, 
um, who are struggling with the same kind of thing. I found that these women heal faster. Um, and as I said, it's interesting, they would find joy in their lives amidst all the pain that had been there for such a long time, and in some cases it would continue for a period of time. I think what, uh, in your book you give various examples of, of um, women who are able to, most of them all were able to get into recovery, and I think that um, the whole concept of do I stay, do I, do I get divorced, do I leave, can I trust them, there are so many fundamental issues that really have to be addressed. And, um, and, and I think they're addressed in the same way through um, al- alcoholism and other drugs of abuse, but this to me just seems so much more profound. It is profound, and I'm glad you've said that. Um, it is... Um you know, we say addiction is addiction is addiction, but in this case, the deception and the betrayal um, here is is literally simply more profound. Their vows have been violated repetitively. They have been repetitively lied to, and it takes, it's more personal. It's a more personal affront here. Um, and that's why we often see the rage responses to this addiction that you don't typically see to the others. Um, that um, when I say the rage responses, we see women, or it could be a male partner, um, whoever the partner is, act out in a way that is extremely violent um, uh, and it's so uncharacteristic of who they are. And I think, again, that speaks to just how profound uh, this uh, pain is for them. There's a, um, in today's paper, actually, here in New Hampshire, there's a, um, there was an article about um, a man who uh, was a murder-suicide that happened, I believe it was last summer, and they had four children, and um, they were kind of like the ideal suburban couple, and nobody could figure out why this happened. And then today we find out that he had, sus- he had suspected her of having an affair with someone, and um, four months prior to the murder-suicide, um, he had assaulted her, and so she found filed for separation, but financially didn't move out of the house. And then um, he he uh, confronted her in their home with their two youngest children, and the two youngest children that called their older children. The four of them broke the the door down, and the father standing over the mother with a knife after he'd already hit her in the head with uh, with a with like a barbell. Mm-hmm. And then he ran off and and hung himself. But mm-hmm. I mean, it was just that was his reaction to her finding, believing that his wife was having an affair. Yeah. And again, that is absolutely the height of the disease of addiction. You know, I, sometimes I feel somewhat jaded, and I'm sure other people maybe in this field do. But you know, I watch a, a newscast, I watch a television show, and I hear something like that, and it says the perfect family. In this day and age, I almost always say there's a secret. And it's a big secret. And very likely it's a secret about betrayal and deception. Um, and as also men are more, you know, men, again, socialization is such that they're more disconnected from their feelings. So when they begin to have feelings, their reaction can be much more steep. Um, but we see it with women, too. I mean, I see women um, who, you know, take, it seems more, much more minor than what you're talking about, but they'll take the keys and they'll key somebody's car. They never would have done that. Um, we saw Lisa Nowak you know, drive a car, the astronaut from Georgia to Florida, to confront the lover of her lover in a diaper so she didn't have to stop to go to the bathroom. Right. You know, Clara Harris running her husband over, over and over after he'd long been dead in a parking lot in Texas for his sexual infidelities. And you know, it's on a daily basis, we're hearing of this. 
Um, and again, this is why how quickly we need to reach out and get help um, and not just assume that it's going to be handled oftentimes within that family situation. But um, some people, again, are more isolated in their lives. There's greater sh- shame for them. Um, and uh, the MO oftentimes for the man is this is a family problem. We're going to handle it in this manner. And I'm, and I'm thinking that there probably has to be a different type of risk assessment if there's this secret that everyone is um, assuming. There needs to be a different risk assessment because one of the potential for violence, the potential for suicide. Um, I've certainly seen many sex addicts um, attempt to get help um, not be and, and relapse and chronically relapse and ultimately take their lives because they don't see themselves being able to get themselves out of this kind of behavior. Um, I've certainly seen many partners in severe depression, anxiety disorders, and I've seen partners suicide. Um, and again, a little bit earlier you talked about how the recovery process is so much about the coupleship. If we simply wait for the addict to stop the behavior and are possibly in that process, have greater recovery than stopping the behavior. Many times, if the partner doesn't get involved, what happens is uh, she will stay caught up, as I said, in her anxieties. She'll stay caught up in her depressions. She'll stay caught up in a selfless manner where she's constantly being vigilant and preoccupied with what it is the addict's doing. And in essence, give herself up. And I have a wonderful, I happen to think it's a wonderful line in my book, but I say, when the fear of losing yourself becomes greater than the fear of abandonment. That's when this partner gets the help that she's needed for a long period of time. And again, let me say that again. When the fear of losing yourself becomes greater than the fear of abandonment, that's when this partner gets the help that she's needed. And we'll be right back after this commercial. A healthy dialogue for your lifestyle. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. Do you remember what life was like when you were young? Having the mobility and ability to play all day and then sleep through the night without needing coffee in the morning? For the majority of us, gone are those days. But they don't have to be. Transforming Health with Brad King will show you how you can awaken your youthful energy potential and live a disease-free life of abundant energy and vitality. Transforming Health is broadcast live every Wednesday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. Um, this is Mary Woods, your host, and our guest today is Claudia Black, and we're talking about her new book, Deceived, Facing Sexual Betrayal, Lies, and Secrets. And um, in our last segment, we were talking about a number of things, and one of the things that really struck me when I was reading your book and you were talking about the women of the lodge, how um, one woman uh, who came to America from another country, thought she was going to get into this perfect marriage, found out almost immediately that her husband had another woman and had a series of other women, and then later in her life found out from her mother that her father had um, cheated on her mother. And then the other woman who talked about um, most of the people that her husband um, had sexual um, activity with were people that she knew. And there just seems to be this community of betrayal that I don't really see in other addictive disorders. Um, I mean, I don't... Usually if somebody in your family has an alcohol or drug problem, it's there, you know it, and it's not... You know, there, there is some secrets, but not the... I just don't see, you know, the collusion with sex and with different... And in working at this point with a great number of people struggling with this, it's often true. And that's even greater betrayal. The woman or the partner is left with even less of a sense of who it is that they can trust. I can no longer trust my neighbor. I can no longer trust the other women in my church. I mean, I cannot tell you one woman said, we have 13 churches in my town. She said, I can't go to any of them anymore because there are women in every one of those churches that my husband has slept with. Um, I have a woman who walks into, she and her husband own their own business, and uh, she won't go back, she won't go down to where the business is because she said, I don't know which of these women that he slept with. Um, and, uh, you know, how many of his friends know about what it is that he's doing. So you're very, you know, that's not always true. Um, you know, for some people who do their acting out, they are so secretive that nobody knows that they're acting out, and they do with very, people that are very anonymous. But with other people, in fact, they're right within their neighborhood, they're within their church communities, they're within their work communities. And the, again, profound sense of betrayal and deception is not just with the person who's acting out, but it's with the community as a whole, which is more devastating and makes sets this person up for greater risk in terms of their own behavior. Um, well, so then how, how does one regain trust of themselves, let alone their partner? And and, that, and I love the way you say that because the first thing they say, the first thing they ask is, why am I not enough? And the second thing they ask is, how will I ever be able to trust him or will I ever be able to trust him? And um, what most women come to is not about trusting him. It's much more about the willingness and wish to trust yourself. Um, and, you know, when it comes to trust, you know, the focus usually is about him, the person acting out. So typically that trust starts with, is there a willingness, and do they demonstrate a follow-through in terms of getting help? And then do you see, now that they're getting help, be it 12-step programs, a treatment program of um, outpatient or inpatient, do you see um, an ongoing commitment to stay involved? And then do you see behavioral changes? But typically, you don't see the change sexually because you didn't see the sexual acting out to begin with. 
so you begin to register other behavioral changes that helps to elicit trust. They don't rage like they once raged. They're more communicative. They're more accountable. Um, they're not near as controlling, uh, that kind of thing. But what it really comes down to is the willingness in which to trust uh, yourself even more so. And that means trusting their intuition. Um, typically, these are partners who've been highly intuitive and, in essence, have sort of been squashed right out of them. Um, and it's a process learning to trust yourself. One, it means a willingness of which to go to a depth of honesty. So this is where I would work a lot with somebody regarding all the ways in which they've rationalized and minimized so they can catch themselves in the process. So you do some what I call retrospective work. Um, you know, we're going to really flush out you know, all of the things they've told themselves, all of that self-talk which kept them stuck in their denial. Because if they can't recognize it in the past, they're probably not going to recognize it present day. Um, that's going to be significant in learning to trust myself. And trusting myself doesn't mean that I also have to um, convince that um, convince him that my truth is my reality. Um, trusting self has a lot to do with boundaries, internal boundaries, um, as well as external boundaries. Um, when I say... Um, you know, I was really questioning what you were doing when I heard you doing this. And, and he says, well, that's, you know, just not true. You just, you hang on to that boundary. You don't let it go just because he says it's not true. And she says, you just need to know that I really question that. And the, the willingness in which to hang on to your own truth. Um, and a part of that will come from the validation you get through other people. And that's why I go back to what I said in the beginning, that's group work. If you can work with other women, it becomes easier to um, believe in your own intuition again. It becomes easier to um, stand strong in the face of often their denial and their rationalizing. You know, um, there's so many things I want to talk about. Uh, one of the things about um, what about adult children of, of these relationships? I mean, is it the same pattern? Is adult children of substance abuse? Very, very similar. Um, what you get is, I, what I think that, you know, I mean, this is very, very similar. You get a lot of enmeshment where they see their mother victimized, and so they become maybe more protective with the mother. When I say enmeshment, sometimes they align themselves in ways that aren't healthy for the mother and or for them. You also get a lot of disconnection because, remember, disconnections had to be modeled in this coupleship um, because you've got somebody who's leading a highly compartmentalized life. Um, and you see those in lots of addictive families. Um, you see more sexual shame, and you see it even if you didn't know the sexual acting out, if you didn't blatantly know the sexual acting out was going on, um, that still there's a underlying sexual message there that there's something wrong in this area. So you see more sexual shame than you might see with other addictive disorders. Um, I do think that because there tends to be more secretive behavior that um, there is more anger on the part of the adult children when they become aware, um, they too feel betrayed. And not just as the spouse feel betrayed, but the adult children often feel betrayed. And what we also have to remember, interesting enough, we're talking about affairs here. A lot of sexual uh, addiction is not about uh, affairs. Um, it can be exhibitionism. It can be voyeurism. 
Um, I always say that the person who's doing the sexual acting out, often their behavior goes far beyond the imagination of those of us who are not engaged in that sexual acting out. So, again, how it manifests itself will, and how outside of somebody's norm it is leads to, again, different kinds of reactions on the part of adult children. But I do want to say something about kids. Uh, kids usually know. To some degree, they know. Um, and they're often put in a situation of keeping the secret. I mean, I cannot tell you the number of times kids were with a person when he was doing the acting out. You know, people say, well, my dad used to take me over to this woman's house, and then I would play with her kids, and then pretty soon we would go home. And he, he said, I went to this person's house a lot when I was a kid growing up. Um, I've heard kids talk about parents engaging sexually with, you know, prostitutes in the front of a car with them in the back seat. So you get more of that, I believe, um, in this addiction. What about staying versus leaving? Is there... I really encourage um, to not immediately leave, that you need some time to really sort through uh, the situation, and that when people sort of do a revenge exit, I call that, that usually what they do is they hang on to the bitterness and anger and they hang on to it for 20, 30, 40 years, and they take it right with them um, into their other relationships. Um, you know, one woman said, I was married to two men, and they both did a lot of sexual acting out, and she said, so I took a, a year off and didn't date, and then I met this wonderful man, and I married him. And She said, I wasn't married to him for a week when I started looking for the other woman. And she said, he sat me down, and he said, I'm not your first husband, and I'm not your second husband, and this is not their problem. This is your problem, and you need to figure it out. And he was right. And again, she had the potential for really seriously damaging what was potentially a positive relationship for her because of her lack of own uh, recovery and really taking, as I said, her bitterness, her hypervigilance, her preoccupation, and her suspicions right into uh, the other marriages. Now, there is something, some people, um, the anger, uh, the pain is so great that they cannot coexist in, that they cannot coexist in the same house. And if that's true, rather than to pursue leaving the relationship in the long term, then I consider what's called a therapeutic separation. And a therapeutic separation is just that. It's not just where you have a time out from each other, but you do have a specified time out in which you both have a specific plan as to what it is you're working on. You do this with the mediator, coach, therapist, um, and you periodically come together, uh, you know, to do an update on how it is you're doing in your own therapeutic processes. But you buy yourself some time while you're working on your individual issues to help stabilize the situation, then to be able to make a healthier decision about staying or leaving. But we can talk about that more. I know we're going to take a break in just a second here. Okay. And we'll be right back after this break. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. 
Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. To perform at your maximum potential, you need to have all aspects of your life working properly. On Mind, Brain, and Body, Dr. Michael John Kell will bring you honest, open discussions concerning your physical, mental, and financial health. If you're ready to find purpose and meaning in your life, tune in to Mind, Brain, and Body every Friday at 8 a.m. Pacific. Mind, Brain, and Body on Voice America Health & Wellness. Radio dedicated to your health, wealth, wisdom, and purpose. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Claudia Black, and we're talking about her new book, The Seed, Facing Sexual Betrayal, Lies, and Secrets. And prior to going to break, we were talking about a therapeutic separation, and I think you want to say a couple more things about that. We were saying that, do you stay or do you leave? And people are so upset um, when so much has been exposed that some people really cannot contain themselves in the same household to... uh, to have any sense of stability. And in that case, I'd probably recommend what's called this therapeutic separation. And what I was saying is it's not just a time out, but it is a separate time from each other, which you have a plan written down. It's like your own contract where each of you individually are addressing your, your the partner's codependency issues, the addict's addiction issues. And typically this is going to be 60, 90 days. I've seen some people do it for a year. Um, when I suggest this to people, they grab their throats so they can't imagine doing this because they think if we're separated, then he will continue to act out, or if we're separated, she'll leave and I'll never get her back. But in spite of those fears, I've seen probably more couples stay together who've taken a therapeutic separation than those who I thought should have and did not. And again, I'm going to say that again because it's so important. I've seen more couples stay together when they did it, and it truly was a therapeutic separation than when I thought they needed to and they did not do it. And they sometimes don't do it right away. I've seen people do it six, seven months into recovery. I've seen people do it three and four years into recovery when there started to be uh, several relapses. Um, But what we're really saying here is, you know, addiction is about all or nothing, one in ten. And when you think about it, the way this couple often operates is everything's just fine or I'm out of here. And we don't want you to operate from that perspective. And so there's usually something in between, and there are ways to give yourself more time so you can make a better decision that's based more out of choice, thoughtful process, versus emotional reactivity. Um, in your book, you talked about how um, the stress of, of living with this uh, affects different women in terms of uh, physical, how the body knows, 
And could you talk a little bit about that as well? Yes. Today we realize that there certainly is mind-body connection in terms of stress influencing illnesses of all sorts. And I've been working in the field of addictive disorders for over 30 years, and I have never seen such a physically sick population as I have seen in the wives of sex addicts. And the sicknesses range from autoimmune diseases, fibromyalgia, lupus, uh, to uh, facial tics, to migraines, to gastrointestinal problems. Um, They run just a huge gamut. And again, I think it goes back to uh, the profound sense of betrayal and the greater need for the rationalizing, minimizing, sticking your head in the sand um, because of the fear of what this would mean if I know the truth. Um, what I've also seen is remarkably, and it only stands to make sense, is that when these women engage in a recovery practice, I see those illnesses, if not totally go away, lessen to a great degree. Now, I don't think that all illness is caused by stress, but stress plays a very important component in a lot of illnesses, and it certainly plays a component in the severity of probably most illnesses. Um, One of the common uh, interventions that happen when treating a couple um, for sex addiction is the disclosure, and could you just talk a little bit about that? Because on some level, that to me seems kind of scary. (laughs) It's very, very scary. Um, The word is disclosure, and it's a therapeutic term, in which the addict and their partner, or it could be the addict and somebody else's significant in their life, come together wherein the addict is going to share uh, uh, the extent of their sexual acting out. Now, we in the sex addiction field believe, for the most part, that this is very good for the coupleship and very good for the different individuals, but clearly timing and motivation is is going to be significant as to whether or not this is going to be an effective process. Um, So one, you've got to have an addict who at this point isn't in denial and at this point already with a therapist and a counselor is able uh, to recognize the impact of his behavior in all these different areas of his life, is able to be uh, quite truthful about the ways in which he has acted out. But you also need to have a partner who has the stability um, and that's why, you know, you talk about risk assessment. Um, do I have somebody who's profoundly already depressed and we need to treat their depression before we're going to have this kind of conversation going on? But again, this is a mediated conversation. Um, and I do want to say that they do not talk about details. They talk about generalities. In what way has this behavior affected the couple's financial situation? In what ways has this behavior are there legal consequences? Are there pub- publicity kinds of consequences? Um, are the general ways in which the person has acted out. I have acted out with prostitutes. I have had uh, one-night affairs when I have been on the road with women I have met in bars. Um, but I don't get down to, you know, I, sometimes the partner will ask for details. You know, what was she wearing? Exactly where did you eat? Um, what did you have? Um, And we call this pain shopping. It does not help the partner to know the details because what happens is they will take those details and they will ruminate and they will obsess. But we do believe that it creates a level playing ground for the partner and the addict 
when the addict doesn't disclose to their partner, it's like they're hanging on to their stash, mm-hmm. that they still own the secret. Um, and it's really the belief that the coupleship will have a better uh, prognosis when there is a healthy disclosure. Now, what sometimes happens is sometimes there's more information that gets revealed, even if the addict stays in recovery. There's things that maybe he didn't say that he forgot, that he just wasn't aware of. He, it wasn't in his consciousness. It happened too long ago. So periodically they come back and there has to be more disclosure. Uh, but overall, it's usually a very, very helpful process. And it is scary and it needs to be handled by a professional who's used to doing this. And I, and I think I'd like you to repeat that because my fear is, is that um, if this is not done well, um, people could just be traumatized for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. It, and I'm going to say again, it needs to be handled by a professional who's very experienced in working with this level of deception and betrayal, and it's probably, therefore, going to be somebody who's very trained in working with sex addiction and their partners. Right. And, you know, again, that also leads me to um, the training. Most of the training that has taken place in terms of depth of training originated from Patrick Karn's work. And, I'd like to tell people who want training um, to go onto their website and to check out um, what's called ITAP, I-I-T-A-P, I-I-T-A-P um, organization. And um, it will, one, tell you where specialists are that work in the area of sex addiction and with the couples around that. But it will also tell you how to further in-depth training. Um, and again, um, I think that for the helping professional out there, you don't necessarily become a specialist yourself, but you need to know what's in front of you when it's in front of you, and you need to know who does do this kind of work if it's not the kind of work that you're going to get trained in doing. And you need to know how to support this kind of work as well. Um, so maybe you're not the one who's going to do the disclosure uh, process with clients, but at least you, if you can understand the validity of that and to know who can, that's then the role that you can play. Well, and I think also as professionals, um, addictions are not always addictions as addictions, and I think we all need to understand what our limitations are. Very much so. I mean, some of us really like working with adolescents. Some of us don't like working with adolescents. Some of us really love to work with eating disorders, and others of us don't. So so know where your talent is. Know where your passion is. Um, But as a professional, it's our responsibility you know, to have some overall understanding of all these various dynamics, as I said, to be able to make the appropriate referrals and uh, to trust your own um, perceptions about what could be going on for the potential for further assessment. One of the questions I had, um, in looking at the women who get involved with these men, do they have their own trauma history as well? Because, you know, if you know someone is married and you know someone is, is, you know, has children and responsibilities, how do you get to the point where you think, well, yeah, he's going he's gonna to pay attention to me, and, you know, how, I don't understand that thinking. I'm not sure I understood the question. The well, one question okay. is they have trauma okay. histories. I did understand that. Yes. Well, the, the women that get involved with the men who have the sexual okay. um, acting out, mm-hmm. do they have their own trauma history? Because, you know, what woman with high health self-esteem would involve yes. themselves with a man who is, you know, who's betraying their their wife, their family, who, you know, doesn't seem to have a lot of integrity. Yes. Typically, women who are involved with men who are acting out have their own trauma histories. And you're very right. They're typically not operating from a lot of integrity, and they're probably operating from a major hole in their gut that's a spiritual hole. Um, 
and looking for somebody else to fill it up. They're looking for the quick fix, as so many of us are, and they just happen to be doing it in this particular realm. And as I've said, chances are that that trauma is really uh, somehow connected to their sexual self as well. That doesn't mean they had to be incest victims or directly molested, but chances are there's certainly a lot of sexual shame, and what they have learned is the way in which to get validation is for that to be reaffirmed for them. Yeah, there's there's just, uh, as I said before, this is very complex, and and, uh, it just kind of compounds everything that we already know. And it's also, you know, I want to go back to, you know, if somebody's alcoholic or a drug abuser, in time with the progression of their addiction, it becomes so apparent. But these are people who have an ability to look so good, and their partners have an ability to look so good. And image management and perfectionism for the co-addict are primary codependency issues that we need to address in the recovery process with this client. Um, and that can really, for somebody who's not real experienced, uh, can allow the caregiver, the healthcare professional, to have their own denial about the seriousness and the extent of this problem. I cannot tell you the number of women who said to me, I've been to 12 therapists, I've been to 40 therapists, and they all said, you know, they, they all, the therapists would rationalize um, and really minimize the situation when many times they were with full-blown addicts. Um, so I, the take-home message is, is that if, if you're a woman out there and you have this gut feeling, um, you can. How, what's the best place for them to go for help? If you have this gut feeling, probably the best thing isn't to immediately confront because they're going to immediately deny and then you don't know what to do with that. So I think the first thing to do is start to do some reading. And, again, you can go to Amazon.com. There's not just my book, but there's other books about both sex addiction and a few books for the partner. There are also 12-step programs that you can go to, um, uh, Co-Sex Addicts Anonymous. uh, uh, um, If you live in a... You can also actually start literally with Al-Anon, but um, we have what's called COSLAA, and then you have COSA, you have S-Anon. Um, again, um, I'd encourage you to go to recoveryzone.com, um, and that's going to tell you where some of these 12-step programs are. I also encourage you to go to IITAP.com, and that's going to help you find sex addiction therapists hopefully somewhat close to your area. But I'd actually start to get some information to help you trust your gut a little bit more, to help you feel more grounded and more confident of yourself uh, before you really started confronting the person who we know is going to deny. But I really encourage you to get help for yourself. Thank you so much for this hour. It's flown by. And um, just thank you so much for being a guest. This is wonderful. And I encourage everyone out there to get deceived, facing sexual, sexual betrayal, lies, and secrets by Claudia Black. Thank you, Mary. Thank you all. It's a pleasure for me to be with you. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.